millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Saturday, August 19th, 2023, the 941st day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms, and of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So here we are with a Saturday edition, as promised, and today I want to talk about the intellectual kids table, which is a phrase I coined last fall on October 7th, 2022. I wrote this on Twitter. Twitter is the intellectual kids table. There are things no one is allowed to say, and everyone just accepts it and adjusts because they're afraid of getting in trouble. So no one has to admit how shameful that is. They ignore it and pretend to have adult conversations. Now, this is one of the relatively early posts of mine once I got back onto Twitter last fall. Even once my account was restored, I delayed for a couple of weeks getting back involved. I wasn't sure that I wanted to be on one of these legacy social media platforms because in many ways, I think they're absolutely terrible. And in fact, I think Twitter is terrible, too. Much of the time I spend on that app, I consider to be wasted time. But there are some advantages, and one of the advantages of that app is that when I can create engagement, whether it's with people on our side or people on the other side, I'm able to get a better idea of what people in the world, people in the country, think about various events and what kinds of arguments they will continuously make. And if you're seeing a lot of people make the exact same argument, 
making all the exact same points from the exact same sources, you can see pretty quickly that that argument is just the one they've been trained to use. And you can and you can pick at that a little bit and quickly realize that there's nothing there. These aren't deeply held beliefs. They are saying what they have been conditioned to say. And it begins to become obvious that there are only two or three or four different approaches that they might take. And once you've learned to deal with all those approaches and all of their steps, they're not going to beat you in an argument. So I want to find, I want to continuously draw out all of the arguments on the other side so that I can shut them down in as few steps as possible. So I'll continually mess with people and poke them and prod them and try to draw out what their real emotions are, what their real arguments are, if they have any. I want to see how they're prepared to treat a stranger so that I know what level they're prepared to go to and can respond accordingly. And because most of the people on there are trying to be impressive within the party of false decorum, they are acting on social media only in ways they believe will increase their reputation among people they want to impress. I know that by and large, they have to stay within a confined informational and linguistic space. They're not allowed to use certain words. They're not allowed to engage certain ideas. They have to prove that they are better, smarter, funnier, more moral all the time. Otherwise, they will not be impressive. They are not confined to the realm of anything provable or logical or moral. They are only judged relative to how they are working to support the agenda of the regime, both philosophically and in practice. The quality of the argument doesn't matter. The truth is irrelevant. Attachment to an observable empirical reality is irrelevant. All that matters is whether or not you're defending the agenda. All that matters is whether or not you're defending the central narrative. On Badlands Story Hour the other night, Burning Bright and I were discussing an element of my approach online. And as I just mentioned, I want to draw out immediately how prepared these people are to be deeply immoral. And you can usually find out pretty quickly. Most people in the community are by now familiar with the Sun Tzu quote, whether from reading The Art of War or from familiarity with the fourth PSYOP group's Ghost in the Machine video. But Sun Tzu said, if your opponent is of choleric temper, seek to irritate him. Pretend to be weak that he may grow arrogant. Now, how is this applied in interactions on social media? Well, what the other side wants is to engage you in a very serious argument so that they can display all the facts they've known and then tell you that your facts don't count for a variety of reasons based on what the source is, based on whether or not that has been fact checked, based on whether or not it has been classified as a conspiracy theory. They want to draw you into a debate so that they can present you with all of the slogans, believing that they have the majority in all cases, the intellectual majority, the moral majority, the political affiliation majority, all these majorities they have are an illusion. They don't actually have any of those majorities, but they are certain that they do. Their proof is in stolen elections. 
and in entirely fraudulent voter registries around the country. And naturally, they agree with the television, so all of culture feeds them back the same messages they have already adopted. They think their beliefs are theirs, though, and they just happen in most ways to correspond to what's on television because everybody knows that the underlying stories in what's on television have to be true. They think their thoughts are original and the television agrees with them. So the strategy is to present you with the slogans and assume that enough people will come rush to their defense that they will make it look like you have an extreme and marginalized, crazy, stupid view. This is how social media has always worked in the past. And if you're familiar with the way social media algorithms work and which viewpoints they bias toward in favor then it's not hard to understand how easy it is to create an illusion of majority, which then puts the person making the counter-narrative claim in the position to be attacked by a social media mob, which might be made up entirely of bots, but is certainly made up entirely of strangers, but nonetheless being attacked by many people at one time, being called stupid by everybody. It's easy to feel bullied and to feel marginalized. And you say to yourself, man, maybe this view really isn't shared by anyone. This is how social media has worked for years between the algorithm, bots, bullying and cancel mobs. They essentially made it almost impossible for anyone's viewpoints to get out there. And of course, once they began censoring, they took it to an entirely new level. And to be fair, they were engaged in some form of censorship the entire time, algorithmically favoring some content over other content is a softer form of censorship than just kicking people off the site. It may seem on its face like it has a different moral calculation, but the truth is that censorship is censorship. You are messing with people's ability to understand what other people think and to learn about other ideas. And we'll come back to that in a second. I should point out that one of the biggest advantages of Twitter, as far as I'm concerned, is something that I refer to as communing with the hive mind. I have ideas about how I see the world. I have ideas about parts of the conversation I feel are missing. The public conversation is not getting every possible perspective that might matter when trying to figure out what in the world is going on in this newly discovered post-truth environment. There is no authoritative source for any of the information. We actually do have to figure it out for ourselves. We have to establish trust for ourselves. We have to figure out who we can listen to. We have to figure out how to get good information. I have ideas about all sorts of different things and I put them out to the world and I see how people respond. A lot of people don't engage online in the replies. They don't read people's replies. There's a reason why I spend so much time doing that. It's because I want to know what normal people think. I'm not interested in figuring out what each and every writer at Town Hall or Red State or PJ Media thinks after having sold out their outlets to Ron DeSantis. I don't need to confine my conversations and interactions with people 
who I'm trying to impress so that they can lift me up through our engagement. Ooh, the Krasensteins are responding to me. I suppose I should be their friend. That's how Twitter works. That's how all social media works. People who are trying to farm attention will try to be best friends forever with absolutely awful people just because those absolutely awful people can make them more popular on social media. They are attention farmers. That is their goal. That's why for the last year, people have been spending their entire lives on Twitter spaces, sharing their dumb normie opinions with one another. What it makes you do is create entirely different standards for what you think is smart and what you think is correct about the world. Rather than analyzing information and deciding for yourself, you end up giving credit to absolutely terrible ideas just based on who expressed them. I saw a perfect example of this today, actually. The guy who writes about wokeness in schools and is now helping Ron DeSantis do something to conquer wokeness in Florida, Chris Rufo, responded to a post from Ian Miles Chong, who is absolutely awful online, doesn't know anything about anything, totally immoral, an absolute jackass. Chris Rufo, the anti-wokeness guy for Ron DeSantis, responds to Ian Miles Chong for posting his Twitter income, which equates to around twenty dollars to $30,000 a month. Chris Rufo is supposed to be a conservative thought leader, and he is congratulating an attention farmer for earning more creating Twitter engagement based on being terrible than most people make in a year. Would anyone who pretends to be a conservative thought leader be interacting with someone like Ian Miles Chong if he wasn't so popular on Twitter? And the answer is, of course not. No one would be doing that. But they're all trying to be in the popular club on Twitter, so they do that. They are trying to impress someone that can help pull them up to the next rung on the social status ladder within the party of false decorum. Now, anyone who follows me can see that I have absolutely no interest in pursuing that strategy because I don't care about the benefits of the party of false decorum. I have, I have already been exiled from it, and to the extent that I can, and I always continue to do more, I try to remove the ideology from my mind completely. I do not want to center my life around impressing certain people I want to impress so that they can lift me up into a position of higher social status. I do not pursue that strategy. I pursue a strategy of trying to enter new ideas into the conversation, trying to obliterate the Overton window completely and force them to censor me if they want my ideas out of the conversation. And I try to remove all of the social incentive from publicly supporting the regime's agenda. I don't think I have ever hidden that this is how I use Twitter. And it doesn't even matter if I tell them this is what I'm doing because they are trying to remain impressive within the party of false decorum. So they have no choice but to do these things 
or block me. And we will talk about that in a couple of minutes. But back to the idea of the intellectual kids table on Twitter specifically, but on all social media. Now, by the time 2020 came around, there were already some people banned off social media. Milo Yiannopoulos, if I recall, was the first one. And then Alex Jones was in there somewhere at the beginning. Doesn't matter. But a lot of people just had the intellectual conversation, the conversation in the abstract about these people being censored. And I can't really remember what all my views around that were. I think that I was probably saying I didn't think censorship was good in any case, but was repeating the slogan about Section 230 and these being private companies and being allowed to censor. I certainly didn't think you should be banned online for making fun of actresses on Saturday Night Live as Milo was. But I certainly wish that I had been more forceful in my defense of free speech at that point and since that point, and I imagine many other people do as well, because eventually we saw what happened in 2020, where people got banned en masse. And I, of course, as you know, was banned on Twitter for two years. I had my Instagram account banned. An employee at Facebook who was somehow familiar with what I was doing put me back on the site. And then I took myself off before they changed their terms of service and said, if you remain on the platform, then you are forever waiving your right to join a class action lawsuit against Facebook now meta. So I was banned and many other people were banned. And of course, it was 2020. So everybody was very, very upset about the very deadly pandemic. And they all argued that it was justified. It was a life or death situation. If these people kept spreading mis and dis and malinformation, they were going to end up killing someone's grandma and they would be responsible for murder, for saying things online and never being anywhere around you or your grandma ever. They were killing your grandma nonetheless. And you, of course, by repeating these slogans within the central narrative, were saving everyone's grandmother, even though you were never going to meet anyone's grandmother or be around their grandmother or anything. You were saving all grandmothers by repeating the slogans within the central narrative, and they were killing everyone's grandmother by spreading disinformation. They had to be censored. Everyone argued for it. Who was arguing for it? Well, everyone on the uniparty left and everyone on the uniparty right. They were arguing it for different reasons. The uniparty left would say it was too dangerous to allow them on the site. They knew that what they were doing was false and wrong, and they did it anyway. That makes them evil. Therefore, it is okay for us to take away their human rights. And the uniparty right would say that in principle, it's wrong to censor, but these people were not being responsible about the data and about the science. And of course, the platforms do have Section 230 protections. So, you know, that's just what they want to do. Did they put up a fight against labeling posts, mis and dis and malinformation? No, they didn't. Did they say that masks and lockdowns and vaccines were bad and wrong and would only serve to hurt people and could not possibly get us out of the very deadly pandemic? No, they just resolved to be extra responsible and never say the things they knew were off limits. 
You see, they were the ones pushing back against the central narrative, not by really disputing it, just by saying, hey, uniparty left controlled opposition, my sweet, sweet friends who I would love to impress while also kind of annoying. I think you're going just a little too far. And then they would tell us, hey, we're the only ones pushing back on the uniparty left and we need to maintain our platform. Otherwise, no one will even see the points that we are making and the world will fall apart. We have to maintain our platform. We cannot risk getting censored. Therefore, we are not going to say the things we know we're not allowed to say. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people were banned and censored on these platforms. Entire counter-narratives were removed from the public conversation, and the people on the Uniparty left and the people on the Uniparty right didn't protest. Because as long as they continued to play their games within the party of false decorum, they could continue building their platform. And as attention farmers in the party of false decorum looking to impress people so that they could rise and achieve success one day, they continued to play their reputational games. And you can't play the reputational games if you're not allowed on the platform. That's like thinking you can become prom king without even going to the prom. Above all else, they had to maintain their platform. But you see, the thing is, when you're only saying things that exist within the set of things you're allowed to say under a censorship regime, the things you're saying are primarily going to be false. And just because you can express an opinion that sounds moral and well thought out doesn't mean that opinion is grounded in an empirical, observable reality. The fact that what you're saying is something allowed to be said in a censorship regime, should tell you pretty quickly that what you're saying is not a threat to the central narrative, and it's not a threat to the regime. You can take COVID, for instance, and masks, masks in schools. The Uniparty right said, oh, we shouldn't mask those kids. We can't force those kids to wear masks. I mean, there might be some health consequences, and they're just kids. They're not going to keep them on their faces all day anyway. They're going to make a mess with their hands. They're going to get the mask all messy. It's just not going to work how it's supposed to. We shouldn't mask those kids in schools. Now, did they stop sending their kids to schools where they had to mask? No, of course not. Did they make the argument that masks can't stop the spread of an aerosolized viral particle? Of course not. They made the arguments that were still acceptable because they weren't threats to the central narrative. They were arguing about the details of complete and total fictions unrelated to the reality that masks don't work and they do have negative consequences. Therefore, if someone is telling you to wear a mask that doesn't work and can harm you, they're certainly not trying to save your life. And because the science knew this for all time, right up until COVID, and their excuse was that COVID was a novel virus and maybe it would work for COVID. Well, then you know that the regime is directly lying to your face and the science is directly lying to your face. And at that point, you should say, my, 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 if these people are lying to my face 
in public about this important subject, what else could they be lying about? But that's not the discussion the Uniparty right had. The Uniparty right had a discussion about whether or not it was even plausible to get kids to wear a mask all day. And they said that masks should not be mandated, but that people should decide for themselves whether or not they want to wear them. And people should wear them because it's polite to others. And, you know, better safe than sorry. So within the central narrative, within the party of false decorum, and at the intellectual kids table, that was the extent of the counter-narrative opposition to what the regime was demanding from the most compliant. They said, wear two masks. At one point, they said, wear three masks. To this day, there are still people driving around in their cars with a mask on. You might say, how is that possible? Well, it's possible in a censorship regime because the true counter-argument is never allowed to be heard. And that, my friends, is the problem with the intellectual kids table. Twitter is not a good place to learn about the world. You might be able to find breaking news quickly there. It might be a very good tool for quickly finding references and news articles. But it's absolute madness to think you're getting the fullness of the public conversation on that platform, even since Elon and even assuming Elon is a good guy, which is, in my mind, the far more likely possibility. It is a bad and ineffective place to actually learn. You are much better off following 30 or 40 high quality telegram channels than spending your day on Twitter trying to learn about what's really happening in the world so you can make your own decisions. Now, maybe that will change once Twitter becomes a totally open and uncensored and unmanipulated space. But until then, it remains the intellectual kids table. There are things you're not allowed to say there. This is the relatively new CEO of Twitter, now X, Linda Yaccarino, on August 10th. By all objective metrics, X is a much healthier and safer platform than it was a year ago. Since acquisitions, we have built brand safety and content moderation tools that have never existed before at this company. And we've introduced a new policy to your specific point about hate speech called freedom of speech, not reach. So if you're going to post something that's illegal or against the law, you're gone. Zero tolerance. But more importantly, if you are going to post something that is lawful, but it's awful, you get labeled. You get labeled, you get de-amplified, which means it cannot be shared. And it is certainly demonetized. Back to your direct point about brands. brands. Yeah. brand safety. So they are protected from the risk of being next to that content. And it's also why uh, it's really important to note that once a post is labeled and it can't be shared and the user sees that 30% of the time, they take it down themselves. Staggeringly, they take it down. 
and that reducing that hateful content from being seen is one of the best examples how X is committed to encouraging healthy behavior online. So basically, she's saying they need to appeal to these brands. They need to protect these brands from being associated with content that people might find objectionable. So they have all of these content moderation tools at their disposal to make sure that content they deem to be inappropriate, lawful, but awful is not seen by anyone. And if the punishments are applied enough times, they believe, in fact, they're certain because the data shows it's true that people will begin to censor themselves online. Twitter certainly still suspends accounts in the 11 months that I have been back on that site. I have been suspended, I don't know, seven or eight times. At this point, it's too many to count, and I don't really care when it happens. Being off Twitter for a week doesn't matter to me at all because I'm not playing the reputational game, so it's not embarrassing for me when I am suspended. I only care that the censorship is still so present there. But a lot of people do care. They want to maintain their platforms, so they will self-censor and adjust to whatever policies are presented in front of them. They believe it is their privilege to use this platform at all. So they don't care about the censorship and they take the same approach that most people took to masks in 2020. They said, oh, it's not that big of a deal. And they would just go along to get along because that's the kind of people they are. They will go along to get along. They don't stand for anything. They don't stand up for anything. And as the world changes over time, they might one day look back and think what happened. But they'll never consider that it's because people just all decided they would go along to get along and they just accepted whatever they were given, saying, please, sir, I want some more gruel. They go along to get along. They want to protect their platform. They want to continue to impress people and they want to know the right things to say in order to continue impressing people. So they need to stay right there on Twitter. They know that censorship exists. They know that they are self-censoring, but they still pretend that all of the information they receive on Twitter represents the fullness of the public conversation despite the censorship. They think that because they see beliefs and opinions that seem to be in opposition with one another, and that people argue about those differences, that must mean they've heard all the different viewpoints. When in reality, all they have heard are a bunch of different versions of the same exact conversation based on the controlled opposition dynamic within the uniparty, within the party of false decorum. They are not getting any of the actual counter narrative at all. There are certain things that aren't allowed into the conversation, and it just so happens that the things that aren't allowed into the conversation are the true things, the important things, and the things that are most damaging and threatening to the systems of power trying to keep people under control in the first place. The systems that do the censoring. Why are they censoring? Oh, it's to protect the system. Of course, they're not censoring on 
someone else's behalf. And they're certainly not trying to solve the problem of disinformation. It would be a better argument, at least, if they were consistently right about anything. But they are consistently wrong about everything to the point where you gotta wonder if they're just lying to everyone. Oh, I know that's the sort of thing extremists and conspiracy theorists say. But at some point, you gotta wonder how else it could be possible to have the world's greatest experts and continuously be wrong all the time while becoming wealthier and more powerful. You gotta think, maybe there's a trick to this. So they certainly are not trying to make sure that only the truth appears in the public conversation, in the digital public square. That's not what they're trying to do. If they are trying to do that, then they are failing spectacularly. And if they're consistently failing spectacularly, at some point you have to wonder, are these really the experts? This week over at Revolver.News, the great Darren Beatty has been discussing an ex-executive tasked with building out the new censorship and moderation team at X by the name of Aaron Rodericks, who Beatty describes as a flaming liberal who's now heading up censorship. Mike Benz, who we've discussed many times, the founder of the Foundation for Freedom Online, called him a double agent. He said, Twitter's current censorship recruiter, Aaron Rodericks, promotes the most scandalous censorship agency in the federal government, DHS's CISA. And he backs up CISA's head of Miss Dis and Malinformation Subcommittee, Kate Starbird. He's actively working against Musk's professed vision which is ostensibly X being the place for free speech and the digital public square. BD writes, he's working under a false banner of free speech, but his past posts reveal that he despises everything that genuine free speech stands for. What's truly concerning is that this quote double agent persona may enable him to continue this tactic for an extended period. It seems that conservatives are being lulled into a false sense of freedom, and that's concerning. And he's right about that. That's something that I began pointing out pretty early on last fall once I was back on the platform. It seemed pretty obvious that the uniparty right establishment media and social media influencers were all going out of their way to talk about how Twitter is now a free speech platform. I can't believe how many new things I'm able to say. and. Me being me went on that platform and attempted to say all the things that needed to be said that none of them were saying. And it turns out you could still get censored for them. Now, to the extent that anyone was able to bear witness to that, that immediately begins to call into question the credibility of all those GOP establishment and elite media and social media influencers who brand themselves as bold truth tellers, but really are just speaking their version of the central narrative marketed to their audience. The popular conservative social media influencers and media influencers are no different than the ones on the left. They're just there to serve the uniparty agenda and benefit from the incentive and punishment structure of the party of false decorum. 
I've said this many times, but like their friends and their controlled opposition on the uniparty left, who they consistently spend the day tickle fighting, they were wrong about every one of the most important issues of the last three and a half now years. They were wrong about COVID. They were wrong about masks. They were wrong about lockdowns. They were wrong about vaccines. They were wrong about mail-in ballots. They were wrong about the stolen election. They were wrong about the very violent insurrection. They were wrong about the vaccines. They were wrong about Ukraine. They've been wrong about almost everything that matters. And their wrong opinion always happens to roughly coincide with their friends on the uniparty left. And they work together to confirm the underlying truth of the central narrative elements, no matter whether or not they express their disagreement with individual aspects. Those disagreements with the controlled opposition are what makes it look like they are presenting all of the possible viewpoints, even though it is blatantly obvious that they exclude other viewpoints from the conversation entirely. Again, that's what the censorship is for. That's what the algorithm is for. That is what the incentive structure within the party of false decorum is for. So all those members of the uniparty right, the media and social media influencers, they all cheered the acquisition by Elon Musk, which by the way, is fine that that's good. I'm okay with that being good. I think it is good. I don't think he actually acquired Twitter, but Elon is the face of it. And I think that's good, but that doesn't make it a free speech site. It is still not a free speech site. It is still a manipulated speech site. And the manipulation comes through censorship and through algorithmic promotion and demotion. These are all blatant violations of the principle of free speech. And as I have said many times, I do not believe that Twitter was a private company, and I do not believe that Twitter now is a private company. But regardless of its ownership status, it is certainly true that the government was working with Twitter to censor Americans. The government is not allowed to delegate to private organizations that which the Constitution prohibits it from doing. So the social media companies were working as agents of the state at the point at which they censored, which means working in league with the government as they censor is a direct violation of the First Amendment. And it is also a direct violation by the United States government of individual citizens, human rights. So on the surface, Twitter is being built up once again as a censorious platform. And this is leading right into a period where we are now seeing the signs that they might try to pull off another very deadly pandemic. Now, the response, obviously, is to call it out as a lie the moment it starts. There is not some new dangerous brand of covid coming out this fall that requires us to go back into lockdowns and back into masking. Not any time, not anywhere. We have learned these lessons. We do not need to repeat them. If people try to force you to comply, you simply leave. If your job tells you you will be fired, you do not comply. You make them fire you and then you sue them. We cannot just continue to comply forever and expect things to change. Sooner or later, people are going to have to risk themselves a little bit. 
everyone is going to have to decide for themselves what that means. But it seems we have a renewed push for censorship on Twitter. It remains to be seen how severe that will be. But you can imagine that if it begins happening and it begins looking like it's headed toward those 2020 levels, people are going to notice it this time and they're going to speak up about it a bit more this time. And they will be clued in to the fact that it is not something they can continue to stand for. And I don't think that I am overestimating the ability of the American people to stand up to this this time. We shall see. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't actually think anybody wants to do the whole pandemic thing again. I think we're going to see a very interesting dynamic emerge over the next few weeks if they do decide to really push this. Because the thing about COVID superfans who will still argue that they were right the whole time, they kind of just get away with that because everyone who might argue with them doesn't really want to engage in the discussion. They're kind of just over talking about COVID. They wish it never happened. They want it to all go away. And of course, a lot of the people who are engaged and around COVID superfans at this point were people who were happy to go along with most of it back then and have probably let some of it go now. None of these people want to ever talk about COVID again, including most of the COVID superfans, because they know that they're not actually right. They can't make all of these arguments work again in this environment. And you got to think that something inside them is cluing them in to that fact. They're going to go down a very, very dark road if they attempt to try to get kids to mask again or try to tell other adults to mask again. If they try to put out a quick vaccine and tell people they have to take it and try to segregate society again, if they try to do lockdowns again and destroy people's careers again, people are not just going to stand for that a second time again. Maybe I'm wrong. Some people have a much more pessimistic view of American citizens than I do, but I think that there are plenty of indicators in the world that suggest people have woken up quite a bit in the last three years. And that's true for all of us as well. We might be way ahead of normies about certain things, but I can only speak for myself when I say I wake up to new realities all the time. I mentioned yesterday how the Ukraine conflict woke me up to entirely different ideas about Nazis and just how defeated they were and how it was possible that something like that could win the approval of standard issue villagers, of generally normal people who would just go along to get along in all circumstances. All they had to be told was that Volodymyr Zelensky, the comedic actor in Ukraine, was Jewish And that immediately made it impossible for Ukrainian Nazis to exist. That was all it took for these people to ignore actual Nazis in the world that are being funded and supported in their name. That is all it took. They just called Zelensky Jewish. End of story. That's not something I would have arrived at without the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So we're waking up to new things all the time. So we can certainly understand that each one of us is waking up more and more as time passes. The trend hasn't stopped for us. We keep engaging with new realities all the time. And we're not somehow special in that. We might be ahead of certain people and behind other people. 
But it's not like other people don't have this innate ability inside them, though there are certainly plenty of people who are unable to access the ability. No matter where we are on the timeline, we are still waking up. We have to assume that other people are continuing to wake up. And as more people wake up further and further, they are more likely to wake up other people. Because once you become comfortable with these new realities, you are more confident in sharing them with other people. And that allows a situation where their eyes can be open to new realities and the process marches forward. The polling also suggests this is true. The percentage of the country, for instance, who now understands that our elections are stolen has risen considerably in the last three years. And that's not going to turn around. That is suggestive of people thinking for themselves and understanding that something is deeply, deeply wrong. And there are also real world trends we can observe. We were told that something like 75 to 85 percent of people took the first round of covid shots and only something like 10 to 15 percent of people actually got the bivalent booster last fall. That suggests that 60% of the country at some point decided to stop trusting the science and start thinking for themselves. The fact that we were told people would have to get new boosters every three to six months and that COVID was never, ever going to ever go away, and now there hasn't been a booster in almost a year, that serves to erode the credibility of the people doing the messaging and of the science at large. So I don't think that people will go for it, but I guess we'll see. There is absolutely no chance whatsoever the regime will be able to pull off a successful, very deadly pandemic without the censorship, though. They need that. They need to make sure that all of the major platforms are censored in the same ways so that the same central narrative begins to emerge about the new, very deadly pandemic. It does not work with just Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and Snapchat, etc., being heavily censored, if Twitter is not heavily censored, because people have and use both apps and people share content back and forth between the apps and with other apps, if one of the apps is uncensored, it's going to be telling an entirely different story in important ways than the censored apps are telling. You gotta have them all or the thing doesn't work. So on some level, it makes sense that we would see a push for more censorship at Twitter. The goal makes sense. The timing makes sense. The only thing that doesn't make sense is how in the world Elon Musk could be pretending with his very private company that it is supposed to be an open public square, a platform for free speech while pushing for more censorship. Now, you are more than welcome to reject this completely, but I will suggest as a possibility that it is worth keeping in the back of your mind. See if events map on to this explanation in the future. That's all it is. Information among other information. It is simply an idea that you can think about while you observe reality and question whether or not that idea seems to fit. Does it explain what's happening? And here's the idea. Just let it rattle around inside that big adult-sized brain without accepting it or rejecting it.
without labeling it true or false. Just allow it to exist and see if it grows or it withers. But I would suggest, potentially, that what we might be seeing, if my understanding of the Twitter situation is correct, would be in many ways parallel to what we have seen time after time in the Trump administration, which is certain figures being drawn out into the spotlight so that we can learn exactly who they are. They are put into a position. They push forward their ideas. And because the figure and the figure's ideas are now in the spotlight, the public is paying attention. When these ideas are made clear, they become so distasteful that everyone rejects the ideas in principle, learns about the regime's agenda, and rejects the person as well. That is the purpose of them being brought into the spotlight. If I am right about the degree of awakening, and I am right about people's views now on censorship that may not have existed three years ago, then we can imagine if the censorship gets ratcheted up quickly, it will spark a pretty massive and dynamic public debate, and people may well leave the platform. And first off, if that were to happen, that would be a massive public story. They are pushing forward a very deadly pandemic narrative, and Twitter is now undergoing massive censorship so that the regime can guarantee that only the central narrative is available for online consumption. Everyone who is connected and addicted to the legacy social media apps is going to get one story and only one story and no counter narrative, even though they know a bunch of the elements of the counter narrative from the first go round. That's not going to work. People are going to notice it is going to become a major public conversation. And that being the case, there's at least some reason to believe that the public pressure on Elon Musk will end up dictating that he gets rid of the brand new censorship regime. So we will have the anti-central narrative narrative and the anti-censorship narrative both playing out because they are trying to increase censorship in an environment where people are very focused on that issue and on the problems with the central narrative. Now, another possibility is something people have talked about for a while and something I have certainly talked about for a while, but that's that Elon might be turning Twitter, now X, into something entirely different, which requires making it not at all Twitter anymore. A lot of people are referring to this as the controlled demolition of Twitter. I am not quite sure that's what it is. A controlled demolition suggests that it will be taken away and gone at some point. I do not think that's what's happening. But as I proposed, probably within the few days or weeks after the sale of Twitter to Elon Musk, in quotes, was announced in, I believe, April of 2022. I think the ultimate goal here is to decentralize Twitter and essentially just make it a decentralized, publicly owned platform that no one controls, that functions as a clearinghouse for content from all other apps. And without going too far down that road, the simple version, the simple idea of it is imagine that on Twitter, you were following me and just by signing on to Twitter, now X, you would see my posts 
from X and from Facebook and from Instagram and from Snapchat and TikTok and Rumble and YouTube and Telegram and Truth Social and blah, blah, blah. You would be able to follow all the content I put up from a range of different apps all on that one app. And what you see on that app is the content from the people you follow from all of the places they're posting content. If I'm right about that, then the X app needs to be changed in many ways to facilitate that. And I think I am right about that, by the way. I think he's working closely or at least in conversation with people like Jack Dorsey. I think that he's probably in conversation with people at the Truth Social or DWAC organizations, Rumble perhaps, Getter, who knows what else. But I think that this is where things are going, which brings me to the latest Twitter development. Yesterday, Elon Musk replied to this post by an account called Tesla Owners Silicon Valley. That post read, is there a reason to block versus mute someone? Give your reasons. Elon responded and wrote, block is going to be deleted as a quote unquote feature, except for DMs. Now, Elon was actually flagged by community notes for that statement. And the community note reads, if the ability to block users was to be removed, X would be in violation of the policies of the App Store, as well as the Google Play Store. Potentially, this could lead to X being removed from these platforms. There are no such policies for the web app, however. Now, there is some disagreement about that. Some people are saying that the block feature on DMs is sufficient to keep the X app in the App Store regardless, but if the X app were to be removed from the App Store at some point, there are certainly plausible workarounds. There is the web interface, which can be used on mobile. And it's also entirely possible that we will see something new emerge that might quickly and easily solve this potential problem. But let's leave that concern aside and focus on the effects of blocking and what they would be on Twitter. As soon as Elon made his post, people started having some pretty extreme reactions. And one of the most common ones was that if you remove this feature, I am going to leave the site because people don't want that negative feedback. They don't want to read it and who really does, but they also don't want it to exist in the replies to their posts because they want to be able to control the conversation about their ideas in their replies. They want it to look like everyone agrees with them. There are, of course, also public figures who are concerned about their quote-unquote safety. And by the way, for some of them, they may actually have legitimate concerns with people going after them and harassing them in ways that would be unlawful, which I'd imagine could still be taken care of. But by and large, people just don't want to be directly bombarded with negative feedback. And this is another element of the intellectual kids table. For years prior to Elon, and maybe again in the future, the more popular and prominent members of the party of false decorum online existed in a safe space. There were a number of things that weren't allowed to be said online, and there were ways that interactions with these popular and prominent accounts 
could be limited. You're not allowed to say mean things to them. Many celebrities had social media managers. Those social media managers had direct contacts at the social media platforms, and they could reach out to those contacts to get certain content and certain accounts taken down on claims that they were harassing these prominent and popular celebrity or influencer accounts. This happened all the time. I was part of a company that did celebrity social media management in Hollywood. And while that stopped prior to 2020, I had some experience with what social media managers were able to ask of the companies and how they were able to protect their clients' public image online by removing disagreement under the guise of it being harassment. So there are probably some situations where the desire to block people might be entirely justified. And if some popular prominent figure has been continually harassed over a long period of time and has had to block countless people, I suppose it's possible that they might begin having a really terrible experience on the X app when the block feature goes away. It's also entirely possible that that won't happen at all. Elon has already made it clear that the mute feature will remain, so you can basically silence someone, at least from your perspective. You don't have to see the things that person says, but they're still going to be able to see the things you say, and they're still going to be able to reply to the things that you say. And other people will be able to see their replies if they want to. Now, I have absolutely no problem with blocking on social media. If people want to block me, that is their right to do so. And I reserve the right to block other people. And I will block them just because they annoy me continuously. I don't owe anything to anonymous strangers on the internet. And even the suggestion that I might have some moral obligation to leave them unblocked based on free speech principles is a little ridiculous to me. Blocking someone from participating directly in a conversation I have generated is not, in my mind, violating the principles of free speech. But it's possible that I've got that wrong, and I'm at least open to the counter-argument. And the truth is, at this point, if the block feature is removed on Twitter, X now, and Elon has said that's happening, the days of the block will be over. And so some people are extremely upset about this, extremely worried. They are saying it's because they're going to be harassed. I suspect it's because they are going to have their content disagreed with far more than they are accustomed to because they have been able to protect their content and sterilize the conversation that happens on their profiles because they participate in block lists and block lists are automated features that have been built usually by third parties that will say block all of the followers of this person's account who is blocked by this person. So you might have a situation where some blue anon journalist has me blocked that block appears on a block list. And once someone activates that block list, no matter whether I have engaged with that account or they have any idea of who I am, I am blocked by them and so are all my followers. 
The idea here is that people wanted to protect the conversations that happened on their platform. And the rationalization is that this person and his followers are incredibly disruptive to what I am doing on this platform. This bot is going to automate this. All of them will be blocked. That is how the block lists function. Now, if you apply that at scale in a massive way, then all of a sudden people are entirely excluded from certain conversations being had on social media. They don't have access to it at all. And being unable to engage in those conversations at a smaller scale is a microcosm of the bigger problem of the intellectual kids table. Removing the ability to block altogether might make a huge difference in terms of these block lists that could potentially shift the conversation really quickly just by opening various conversations to all sorts of people who have been unknowingly excluded from them. But the most interesting possible effect of this, I think, will be that people don't have the ability any longer to keep dissent and disagreement off of their profile. Now, I think most people realize that's not the reason why I'm generally blocking. I'll generally just block people who are insanely disruptive and won't quit. Obviously, you will know that my most common response to people who are dissenting and disagreeing with the things I'm saying in disruptive ways is to make fun of them relentlessly for having such bad ideas and still thinking that they are the ones who should be leading the conversation forward, even though they're also the ones who wore masks in their cars. And they're the ones who pretend that Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes. I'm more than happy for them to present their disagreements because nothing can be less convincing than arguments coming from those people. They are wrong about everything all the time in the exact same direction that the uniparty left and uniparty right establishment are wrong about everything all the time. The more people repeat those slogans, the more obvious they become. And it becomes obvious that they are either coordinated or at least derived from the same source. And when people see those slogans disputed, more and more people realize that the slogans themselves aren't true. And so the more their viewpoint is presented, the worse it makes them look and the worse it makes the viewpoint look, particularly when they are trying to convince everyone that their viewpoint is correct while simultaneously dealing with me. So I am not harmed by dumb dissent. I'm not threatened by dumb dissent. Let dumb dissent exist and I will deal with it accordingly. I don't block people for dumb dissent. But attention farmers within the party of false decorum do block people for dumb dissent. And they especially block people for smart dissent because smart dissent exposes them as not all that bright and not all that honest. Now, we know it's also true because people have examined elements of the ranking algorithms the algorithms that dictate how often your posts get seen and by whom factor in the rate at which your account is blocked. So if your account happens to be on a number of block lists and you are blocked by a lot of people, that is probably harming your posts in that algorithm. 
I am guessing this could potentially have a rather profound effect on the extent to which shadow banning affects one's account. So I think it'll be interesting to see from kind of a technical standpoint, just the difference in how the site will function. But the dynamic I'm most interested in is to see how people change their own behavior based on seeing feedback that they don't like. Now, they might just be perfectly content with muting accounts who are continually disruptive to them and letting those conversations happen on the sideline. If those disruptive accounts are able to engage all of someone's followers and those followers engage back with them. Well, that's just what happens. And maybe the conversation ends up focusing on that. Maybe they steal the focus of the conversation. Now that might be very disappointing, but it also might be entirely natural. And it also might be what happens in a free market of ideas. It might well be true that a lot of the people who are influencing the public conversation right now in these safe spaces that they have kind of customized for themselves over the years and that they have taken advantage of certain aspects of the site, certain aspects of the culture, certain aspects of their social status in order to continue customizing and fortifying their safe space online. It might just be that all of that goes away for these people and they're not able to control the public conversation in the same way. They might have been really popular within these certain parameters when the system is set up in a way that can protect them. But that might not remain true if the environment around them changes. They might not be able to operate in a space where people are continually telling them, hey, Your ideas are wrong. Your ideas are stupid. Your ideas are evil. And it turns out there's a lot of very wrong and stupid and evil ideas that appear all over social media and go generally unchecked because those ideas are supported by the regime and all of the mechanisms of control the regime deploys to support the central narrative. A lot of these people have probably been getting at least a semi-free ride when it comes to dissent and disagreement with their ideas. The system that promotes their ideas also makes it look like their ideas are a lot more popular and a lot smarter than they are. And even within the set of people expressing those same ideas, the extent to which they express and support those ideas in support of the regime agenda or the extent to which they provide valuable controlled opposition also in support of the regime agenda, the extent to which they behave and serve the public conversation that the regime wants to create, they are made more popular and are made to look much smarter in their viewpoints than their viewpoints actually deserve. Now, I don't know that this is what is going to result from these changes. That's obvious. We're talking about potential futures here. We're talking about ideas. We allow time to continue and then we reflect on whether or not what emerges in reality, the empirical observable reality fits this model of thought or instead rejects this model of thought and fits another one entirely. But if this is how things go down, this is going to provide major changes in the public conversation, 
it may become a lot harder to protect the central narrative based on this change alone. And this change alone could nullify some of those censorship and moderation tactics. We shall see. It is also entirely possible that this just causes a huge mess on the X platform, causing all sorts of people to leave the platform. Now, I'm not saying I want all sorts of people to leave the platform, but also that is not the worst thing that could ever happen. If people are that concerned about being disagreed with online, that they leave the platform in search of other safe spaces, then the public conversation on Twitter changes even further to the people who can happily deal with the new environment. And it might be that the new environment is worse for absolutely everyone while still being a net positive, because I have a strong suspicion that the new environment will be most difficult for the people who are already the absolute worst, people who are corrupted and compromised, people who are protecting their public image from public exposure by maintaining these customized safe spaces. Rather than building up a thicker skin over the past few years on social media, they have developed a thinner skin. They have been protected constantly. Their ideas have been elevated. They have been made to look more popular than they are. Their ideas have been made to look smarter than they are. And if that all goes away, they are going to have absolute meltdowns. The people the new environment will likely be the easiest on are people who are accustomed to conflict online. And it may well be true that very few people are more accustomed to conflict online than I am. Now, might Twitter become so bothersome and so annoying and so flooded with trash and nonsense that it is no longer worth being on that platform? From my point of view, that is absolutely possible. And if that happens, I will not hesitate to make that move. I don't care about Twitter that much. But as somebody who actively pursues conflict on that platform, I think I'm probably going to be able to deal with it. I am certainly going to do more to disrupt major accounts who are constantly supporting the regime than I will be harmed by various Twitter bots and trolls who are saying all of the same things all the time. I'm not going to have my life destroyed by anonymous internet strangers who may not even exist as real people in the world. And hey, it's also possible that Elon Musk might ruin X completely, as certain people are saying he has already done, and maybe everyone will leave the platform. But if only certain people leave the platform, and they are all the people who have maintained their safe space while supporting the regime, then the platform becomes even more anti-regime, assuming that this censorship stuff doesn't go into full swing even harder than it did in 2020. And again, if it does that, everyone's going to know. Assuming it doesn't do that, it will present an even greater counterweight and counter-narrative to the censored platforms like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Snapchat, whatever. And just as an aside, I watched a couple of minutes of the Laura Loomer, Bill Mitchell debate on Tim Pool's show. 
and it's hard to even call stuff like this a debate, but Tim Pool is still making it clear to the YouTube moderators that he is not breaking the rules. There was a brief conversation about the effectiveness of the vaccines, and Tim Pool was like, well, I just want to be clear. <laughs> We're not giving anybody medical advice here. Still self-censoring to comply with YouTube's rules. But hey, you know, got to keep the platform. He has so many viewers and listeners in his audience that he has a duty to maintain his platform. Otherwise, they won't get cutting edge stuff like Tim Pool anywhere and the mainstream content will be even worse. He can't be expected to tell the truth with his platform at stake. And the truth is, sadly, that because Tim Pool has remained at the intellectual kids table over these last few years, he just simply doesn't know any of the important truths. Sure, maybe he figures it all out a few years later and then says it once it's totally safe to say, once the things he is about to say have already been incorporated into the central narrative, well then Tim Pool is happy to say them. Oh, he's so bold. But I think the possibility with the greatest likelihood is that he just doesn't know. Why doesn't he know? Because he has spent the last few years learning at the intellectual kids table. All of these people have spent their time learning within a censored environment. Massive portions of the important conversation have been left out completely. These people have not been exposed to the conversations. They have not been exposed to all of the counterpoints to what they're saying. And in that censored environment at the intellectual kids table, they believe that they have developed the best possible arguments, that their arguments are irrefutable. They have defended these arguments very strongly. And because they are able to be the last person standing at the intellectual kids table with these arguments, they not only believe that their arguments are right, they believe their arguments are unassailable, and they believe that anyone arguing this other counterpoint really is the conspiracy theorist they were labeled as lo these many years ago when the censorship really took over. They'll come right out and say, that people were censored because they were wrong, because they were being irresponsible. They support the censorship regime in practice while saying that they are opposed to censorship most of the time. They think they have found defensible positions. They think their viewpoints are right and true. And not only that, they think they are good people for expressing them. And they have been allowed to believe that and protected in their beliefs by the technical aspects of the platform and by the censorship at large because it has prevented all of those counter-narrative ideas from being allowed in the conversation. And it turns out those counter-narrative ideas, those other ideas that were censored off the platforms, well, those are all the ideas that prove these people wrong in every respect. And you can see a perfect example of that in the Ron DeSantis info op. You can see the effects of the intellectual kids table. And we got a perfect example of that last week from a DeSantis simp named Pedro Gonzalez. He wrote a long thread about how bad Trump and his supporters are, how stupid they are, of course. He wrote, Trump has so badly broken the right, I don't think people understand it yet. Oh, he's going to teach us a lesson. 
You've got pundits high and low posting about civil wars and Rubicons and turning points for the umpteenth time. Trump is Caesar. He is the one true populist. He is Zenu. He is going to save us, but we must also save him. Donate now. Always, always, always. These guys say it's about the money. Like we talked about yesterday, Trump is tricking everyone. All of his supporters, the billionaire is doing all of this, risking his freedom and safety to trick his supporters into giving him a few million dollars in donations. Meanwhile, Trump is throwing under the bus people who went to bat for him after the 2020 election. The sole purpose of his quote unquote candidacy being to extract as much money as he can from people in the GOP who would vote for him if he were a corpse. You got that? We are so stupid that we would vote for Trump even if he were dead. And the only reason he is running is to get our money. The billionaire decided he did not want to play golf at his beautiful home with his beautiful wife in favor of risking his life and freedom to get a few million dollars from average Americans. His inner circle exclusively consists of the scummiest people in politics, people who would throw their mothers down the nearest set of stairs if Trump asked them to. Not like Ron, who has surrounded himself with Christina Pushaw and Brian Griffin and his alter ego Max Nordau and all of these other DeSantis simps. Oh, Ron is the guy who gets all the good people around him. You could not have a scenario that more favors the Democratic Party than this in the long term. The right impotently seethes and indulges in VR revenge fantasies that will never come true while Democrats keep doing their thing. You see that we are never actually going to defeat the regime. That is all a virtual reality revenge fantasy. The MAGA right is impotent as we continue to grow every single day and convince broad swaths of the American public to join us while these morons take Ron D. Santis to 0% in the polls and destroy his political future forever. We are the ones engaged in fantastical thinking. And these guys who still tell everybody that Ron is going to win are the ones who are deeply connected with the reality, as you'll continue to see. Trump stepping on rakes and getting constantly owned by his enemies while betraying people is good because it reveals the machinations behind the boot upon our throats. And of course, he is talking about the school of thought that we regularly discuss and continually support and prove that much of this simply is not real, first and foremost. But naturally, Pablo is also confused about the ultimate point of this whole thing. He thinks it is about Republicans winning the 2024 rigged election. That is the ultimate goal. We have to win that rigged election. So therefore, we need to find candidates that the regime will accept and not steal the election from. The number one guy for that is Ron DeSantis. But that, of course, is not the goal. And it cannot be the goal. It is a very stupid goal, particularly once you realize that our elections are stolen. 
If you admit that, if you understand that, then you'll understand that the country has been usurped. And when you have a usurper in charge of the country, you have bigger problems than attempting to win a rigged election according to the results provided by the usurping regime. This is one of the dumbest ideas of all time, but it is also the smartest and toughest sounding idea about what needs to happen at the intellectual kids table over there. These ideas make so much sense. Donald Trump lost to Joe Biden by millions and millions of votes. Therefore, despite the fact that he's up 60% to 9% over Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis is still the only man that can defeat Joe Biden. Does that make any sense at all? Of course not. Of course not. It makes absolutely no sense, but these people are certain that it's true because society reflects to them the truth of these statements and the platforms that exist to promote the agenda of the regime promote all of these ideas as if they're true and intelligent and far more popular than they are. He writes, that is the level of cope. The right is on right now, and there are no signs it will soon abate. You see, Pablo is a realist. He understands the stakes and is willing to fight for them, whereas MAGA is just existing in a fantasy world. Now, sure, we are the ones who fought against the entire COVID narrative and the entire J6 narrative and the entire stolen election narrative and the entire Ukraine narrative. And we're the ones who have been right about each and every one of those issues while the uniparty right has participated in the controlled opposition narrative that ultimately supports the regime's agenda. And virtually everybody understands that at this point, but no one is allowed to talk about it at the intellectual kids table. So if you're sitting over there, you simply don't know. And this is the problem with learning in a censored environment over the course of years. You actually think that your terrible ideas are very smart and very popular. And that is Pablo's major problem here. We're talking about someone who expresses the belief that Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes. Or he'll say, no, I know he didn't do that. But Trump just didn't fight hard enough to keep the presidency, and therefore we need to replace him with someone else, someone else who can win a rigged election. And again, these guys think that logic makes sense, that their point is smart and unassailable. And not only that it's smart and practical and unassailable on those counts, but that it's also morally good. Because it has to be all those things or else it might immediately be exposed that their ultimate purpose is helping the regime get rid of Donald Trump. Because if you get rid of Donald Trump and you can get rid of his supporters forever and you can marginalize them and censor them, all of a sudden these figures on the uniparty right who have skated by at the intellectual kids table while MAGA did all the heavy lifting about all of these issues, if Donald Trump and MAGA just disappear and the uniparty right rises to power, then all of these people believe that they have won the race. And that's what all of this is about. They don't care about the country. They don't care about the state of the country. They care about sounding like they were right the whole time. And the way they're able to sound like that is by figuring out how to take down Donald Trump, because Trump 
and Trump supporters were actually right about the whole thing the whole time. And if everyone figures that out, well, it's going to make Pablo look kind of silly. But let's go on. A Twitter user responded, apparently you haven't been paying attention to the GOP for the last three decades and what they've done to us. And that is an excellent point. One that I have made many times on this podcast. These very people talk about a culture of losing that they blame on Donald Trump. But it's not Donald Trump who created a culture of losing in the Republican Party. No matter how many races the Republican Party claims to have won in the era of obviously stolen elections, they have given the country away. They are the culture of losing. And they were also the greatest blocks to Trump's agenda. They didn't help Trump win more on behalf of the country. They tried to thwart Trump's agenda at every possible turn while making it seem like they were largely on Trump's side. They were allies. We're all in this together, GOP. Just not if it means supporting MAGA. And that's why they were more than happy to go along with the regime narrative about the stolen election. Oh, we are threatening democracy if we question the integrity of this election. Hey, folks. Trump brought his court cases and the courts have decided that there was not fraud and that the election will not be overturned. And unless we're going to overthrow our democracy for this one man, we need to go with what the courts say. Ah, yes. Very patriotic, very smart, very bold, very strong. Sure, we'll allow the country to be usurped by an illegitimate communist dictator but we'll only do it in order to preserve our democracy. Don't you see how smart and brave and patriotic that is? The GOP establishment has spent three or four decades at least now giving away the country completely because they know that the uniparty left controls the culture. And unless they want to be shunned by culture, they need to allow the uniparty left to serve the regime openly and successfully while they exist as the Washington generals free to let the regime do whatever they want as long as they're allowed to speak out against it without actually stopping it. They will actually profit the entire time and so will their friends and supporters. They will say they care about the country, and on some level, I'm sure that they believe they really do. But their version of caring about the country will be personally profiting while the country falls apart. The GOP establishment is no friend to actual conservatives or patriotic Americans. But Pablo goes on. Trump took GOP impotence, put a MAGA hat on it, and sold it back to you at twice the price. Don't you see? Trump's presidency was an absolute failure, an example of just how dangerous it is to allow a populist candidate into a position of leadership thwarting the goals and the knowledge of elites like Pedro L. Gonzalez. And by the way, he's not an elite. He's a wannabe elite. He is striving for elitism within the party of false decorum paradigm. He is acting as an elite, so he will be seen as an elite. And so that elites will see him as a valuable asset to elites and then ultimately make him an elite himself. 
his position is one of servility until he is elevated to the position where he is finally in control. This is what all wannabe elites strive for. They don't understand that there is never a time where they will be in a position of actual control. They might be seen as high status. They might have sway over other people and their material lifestyle will improve, but they will always still be in the same position of servility, having to do favors for people above them in order to continue rising within the party. He goes on. The right has even resorted to using certain phrases as a crutch to avoid having to do any real thinking. Deep state. Regime. People don't even try to define these terms anymore. They just mean, quote, not for Trump. Now, this post is rather brilliant because very, very smart Pablo has figured something out. He has figured out that he doesn't understand how other people are using a word and his only response possible is that they must not understand the concept because he doesn't understand how they're using the word. And why doesn't he understand how they're using these words? Well, it's because he spent all his time at the intellectual kids table. He has been totally unaware of an entire body of thought, an entire school of thought and mindset is completely opaque to him still because he has been at the intellectual kids table. He has not been exposed to these ideas, so he does not understand these ideas. He has never tried to understand MAGA or what Trump supporters actually believe because Trump supporters in his mind are lower than him in the status hierarchy. They are on a lower rung within the party of false decorum. Therefore, their opinions don't matter at all. Impressing them means nothing to him. The people he needs to impress are impressed by people who can effectively marginalize their enemies and their opposition. And so Pedro Gonzalez, DeSantis simp, is once again performing his role of servility to the regime by attacking people on lower rungs than he is on, at least in his mind. That is what he is doing. He doesn't need to know about their ideas because their ideas are automatically wrong. And this is another good opportunity to remember that people like him, people on the uniparty right, just as much as people on the uniparty left, have unwittingly walked themselves into a hate movement. These ideas are wrong and bad and stupid based on who holds them. While he doesn't bother to understand any of them, he's not even trying. He thinks because he doesn't understand the concept of the deep state or the concept of the regime. And by the way, that is my word for it. So, hey, thanks, Pedro, for the inadvertent shout out. But he thinks because he doesn't understand how these phrases are being used that the people using them don't understand them because the people using them, those people aren't as smart as Pablo. Now, he also asserts that these ideas just mean not Trump. And so he takes that to mean he believes that these terms just simply become a catch-all and a derogatory label for everyone who opposes Donald Trump. 
And that could potentially be a plausible explanation, but it also just happens to be wrong. And he will not engage the correct explanation of the phenomenon he is correctly observing because he is trapped at the intellectual kids table and has not been exposed to any of these underlying ideas. So he actually doesn't understand the mechanics of how that phenomenon actually function. It is not that not Trump equals deep state or equals regime. And then that relationship can be applied to anyone who says anything bad about Donald Trump, though all the DeSantis simps think that because they don't understand what they are actually supporting. They deny that they are supporting the usurping regime, even while they are openly supporting the usurping regime in an irrefutable way. There's no discussion about whether or not they are supporting the regime of the usurpers while they go out and tell everybody that the obviously stolen election was free and fair, safe and secure, and that the reported results accurately reflect the will and intent of the American voter. They aren't able to accept that fact because that would make them the problem, and they don't know the underlying arguments because they've been stuck at the intellectual kids' table. It's not that it's a catch-all. It's that being anti-Trump is the most clear identifier of an effort to support the regime. It's not that it's always right, but it is a massive red flag because Donald Trump is the greatest threat to the regime and nothing in the world could be more obvious. If you are opposing Donald Trump, you are necessarily doing so in favor of the regime. And when you are receiving public attention, money and positions of power, including increased social status by being overtly anti-Trump, or you are actively promoting the regime's agenda as people on the uniparty left do openly then it is entirely accurate to say that you are supporting the deep state. You are supporting the regime. It does not matter whether or not they identify as regime supporters. These people are like trans Americans. They are supporting the global regime's usurpation of the country while identifying as its staunchest defenders. He goes on. James Burnham used the ideologue to explain liberalism, but I think it just as well applies to the current state of the right under Trump. It's not populism, it's ideology. Well, populism is an ideology, but let's see what you're going to say. Here's the quote. There is no possible argument, observation, or experiment that could disprove a firm ideological belief for the very simple reason that an ideologue will not accept any argument, observation, or experiment as constituting disproof. Now, let's approach this from both directions. We are continuously told that we will say Donald Trump is right in every situation. And I have, of course, addressed this before. We are told we are in a cult. We will do whatever Donald Trump tells us to do, even though we were also the absolute least likely people to get vaccinated with what these people call Trump's vaccine. While many of these people, if not most of them, did the exact same thing the controlled opposition on the uniparty left did, and they went out and got at least the first round of doses and all explained it on some practical basis. They wanted to protect people. Oh, you heroes. 
They wanted to be able to travel. Oh, you worldly soul. And even though they took it, it is all still Trump's fault because the vaccine went wrong. It's all Trump's fault. Trump is very evil. Trump must announce it. If he doesn't announce it, oh, Trump's evil. And Trump fans are in a cult. Even though Trump supporters were the least likely people to take the vaccine that they refer to as Trump's vaccine. And they still say, despite that, that we do whatever Donald Trump says. We're in a cult. Of course, we can never say that Trump is wrong. And that's point number one. Point number two, we are told we must announce things that Trump has done wrong in order to maintain our image of objectivity, as if everyone's goal should be to be seen as objective in a journalistic sense about all of their personal beliefs. Now, that is absolutely retarded. You're allowed to believe whatever the hell you want. There is absolutely no requirement whatsoever for you to be able to provide objective journalistic evidence for all of the things that you think. Journalists aren't objective. They do not understand, broadly speaking, right now, what constitutes evidence. And they're not even doing journalism. They're just printing propaganda for the regime. You're allowed to believe whatever you want about the things Donald Trump does, and you don't have to prove them. It could just be your belief. And if it turns out that everybody believes the same thing you believe, and you all vote based on those beliefs, and most of the people vote for the thing you vote for, people like Pablo telling you you're wrong and crazy doesn't matter at all. Doesn't matter what he considers objective truth. It doesn't matter at all. And ancillary to that, or point number three, if you will, is that you don't have to prioritize the same thing Pablo or Pedro or whatever his name is prioritizes. He can think Trump has done something absolutely terrible and abhorrent and stupid and un-American. And you don't have to think that at all. You can think he's wrong about that. You don't actually have to admit that he's right about that. But even if you agreed with him, and you think that Trump did something bad, you don't have to pretend that all of a sudden you can't like Donald Trump anymore. And I've talked about this before in relationship to our relationships. It's true of romantic relationships. It's true of friendships. It's true of all relationships. Somebody might do something that you don't like, and you still might understand that everything else they do is something you do like. And you might value them more than everybody else, even though they do some things you don't like. That is an entirely reasonable, rational point of view. And it would be absolutely insane to just write off your friends, your family, your wife, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, etc. Just because they did certain things you don't like. You're allowed to do the same things with Donald Trump. And let's just take a second and approach this from the opposite direction. I'm going to read this quote again. There is no possible argument, observation, or experiment that could disprove a firm ideological belief for the very simple reason that an ideologue will not accept any argument, observation, or experiment as constituting disproof. Now, Pedro, or Pablo, is a diehard DeSantis simp who has been down from day one when Trump whispered his first desanctimonious 
Pablo, along with the rest of them, immediately sprung to action in an attempt to destroy Donald Trump. Not to say Ron DeSantis is the greatest man to ever exist. No, to destroy Donald Trump and go after his supporters, including just normal people who have been gone after harder than anyone in our country. That is what they did in order to protect Ron. Now, there is quite a bit of election fraud and manipulation in Florida. And through that election fraud and manipulation last fall, they created a 20 point win for Ron, showing him to be the most popular governor in the country. And Ron still goes out and says he was the best governor in the country when it comes to COVID, even though he provably was not. He went along with the whole thing. In fact, they had the third most COVID deaths in his state. And they tell us that's just a factor of population. But it's not a factor of population when you remember that all of the data is fake and everyone got paid a ton of money for increasing the numbers throughout. Did Ron know that was happening? Well, he certainly did. Did he put a stop to it? He certainly didn't. So, yeah, that third most number matters. And these guys make all their arguments about covid and everything else. They argue that Ron was better than Trump about all of these things, even though Trump is identified with the position that they are now supporting, but that they fought against in 2020. These are the people who used to say that Donald Trump was unserious. He was handling COVID poorly. His supporters were conspiracy theorists. Their voices must be barred from the conversation so that the serious people can be in control. And now they are all essentially arguing the opposite viewpoints. The only consistency there is that they have been anti-Trump the entire time. And they have always held themselves in the view that they are much better and much smarter than all of Donald Trump's supporters. Now, they have pressed these arguments for nearly 10 straight months now. And in that time, Ron's polling, while it has always been well behind Donald Trump, has gone from 15, 20, 25 points behind Trump to now 40, 50, 60, 70 points behind Donald Trump. These guys expressing these arguments have taken one of the political rising stars in this country and ended his political career. And whether that is stopped by Ron dropping out before the primaries or whether we go all the way through and see the GOP establishment rig the primaries for Ron and things are settled out after that, he's finished. And these guys have ruined it for him. One of the brightest political rising stars in America has had his career ended by these stupid, dishonest and immoral arguments. Every one of the pro-Ron arguments is simultaneously stupid, dishonest, and immoral. All of them have all three characteristics, and all of these arguments have destroyed Ron as a political figure in America, but they won't admit it. They still say Ron is going to win. He is behind Chris Christie in some states and behind now Vivek Ramaswamy in a bunch of other states, but they're still saying that Ron is going to win. They still believe, despite all evidence to the contrary, that Donald Trump is stupid and narcissistic and egomaniac with no foresight. He is reckless and careless. He is self-interested. 
All he cares about is his short-term benefit and his public image. He is not strong enough. He is not smart enough. You know who is? Ron DeSantis and all of Ron DeSantis's supporters. Doesn't matter how much evidence they have to the contrary. All of this is true because it must be true. And it must be true because they know they're right relative to Trump and his supporters. Because once again, they have inadvertently walked themselves into a hate movement of which Donald Trump is the avatar and Donald Trump's supporters are the targets. Is it really any surprise that all of these people and the people they support were supporting the Ukraine conflict? Of course not, because it's an ideology and their ideologues. They will support the regime at all cost. They don't even know they're doing it, which is why they will not accept any argument, observation or experiment as constituting disproof. They are unaware of the conversation because they have spent the last three years at the intellectual kids table. They have no idea what Trump and his supporters are even talking about. They just know that it must be wrong. Now, let's observe the very same phenomenon, but from the other side. This piece appeared in the New York Times on August 2nd. This is the New York Times, quote unquote, conservative columnist, David Brooks writing. The headline is, what if we are the bad guys here? Donald Trump seems to get indicted on a weekly basis, yet he is utterly dominating his Republican rivals in the polls, and he is tied with Joe Biden in the general election surveys. Trump's poll numbers are stronger against Biden now than at any time in 2020. And David Brooks is telling a very convenient lie there. He probably has one or two polls that show Trump tied, but in the vast majority of polls, Trump is considerably ahead of Joe Biden. That is not how it is supposed to work for Donald Trump against a Democrat, because, you know, there are so many more Democrats. Democrats always win the popular vote, even if those dastardly Republicans can find a way to win based only on the totally anachronistic and racist Electoral College. Brooks would be far more accurate to admit that Donald Trump is absolutely dominating the Republican field and also dominating Joe Biden. What's going on here? Why is this guy still politically viable after all he's done? We anti-Trumpers often tell a story to explain that. It was encapsulated in a quote the University of North Carolina political scientist Mark Hetherington gave to my colleague Thomas B. Edsall recently. And he said, Republicans see a world changing around them uncomfortably fast and they want it to slow down, maybe even take a step backward. But if you are a person of color, a woman who values gender equality or an LGBT person, would you want to go back to 1963? I doubt it. So that's the quote from University of North Carolina political scientist Mark Hetherington. And you see, he's a scientist, so you know he must be right. In this story, we anti-Trumpers are the good guys, the forces of progress and enlightenment. The Trumpers are reactionary bigots and authoritarians. Many Republicans support Trump no matter what, according to this story, because at the end of the day, he's still the bigot in chief, the embodiment of their resentments, and that's what matters to them most. I partly agree with this story, but it's also a monument to elite self-satisfaction. 
So while David Brooks admits that this is self-satisfying image building on the part of anti-Trumpers, he also pretends that it's partly true, which is basically saying that the truth actually does make us look better. And of course, David Brooks, the elitist that he is, believes that everything makes them look better. But back to the very astute, the very serious intellectual David Brooks. So let me try another story on you. I ask you to try on a vantage point in which we anti-Trumpers are not the eternal good guys. In fact, we're the bad guys. This story begins in the 1960s when high school grads had to go off to fight in Vietnam, but the children of the educated class got college deferments. It continues in the 1970s when the authorities imposed busing on working class areas in Boston, but not on the upscale communities like Wellesley, where they themselves lived. Wait, is he saying that the rich people who called themselves the educated class supported segregation for their families, but integration for everyone else? Why did they want to keep it segregated? I thought they were the people who were anti-racist. And man, it's kind of weird that the educated classes are the ones that didn't have to get drafted into wars, while those people are the same ones who are now starting the wars. Gosh, how strange. I wish I could understand it, but hey, <laughs> I'm not part of the educated class, even though I did go to an elite college. The ideal that we're all in this together was replaced with the reality that the educated class lives in a world up here and everybody else is forced into a world down there. Members of our class are always publicly speaking out for the marginalized, but somehow we always end up building systems that serve ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, yeah. How does that happen? How does it happen that all the systems the educated classes build always end up benefiting them to the detriment of everyone else while they always sell those systems on the basis that they will help everyone else to the detriment of them because they're the ones they say who are going to pay for it. It's almost like harming other people is big business for the educated class. But hey, let's give David Brooks the benefit of the doubt here because he's trying to admit that they might be the bad guys, even though it's totally okay and he's not going to change anything. The most important of those systems is the modern meritocracy. We built an entire social order that sorts and excludes people on the basis of the quality that we possess most, academic achievement. Highly educated parents go to elite schools, marry each other, work at high-paying professional jobs, and pour enormous resources into our children who get into the same elite schools, marry each other, and pass their exclusive class privileges down from generation to generation. And of course, that's true. And on some level, you can't blame them. Everybody wants the most advantages possible for their family. That is their job as the head of a household. In our traditional understanding of college, to some extent, all of this made sense. Of course, people are trying to go and acquire skills to make them viable in a future emergent economy. Now, does that reflect what college actually provides? I would argue not at all. 
and the economy they've promised has not emerged. And the problem is that the infiltration of Marxist ideas is pervasive throughout the college system, which means that everyone who becomes part of that system and indoctrinated by that system on the promise that their indoctrination will provide them with financial and other advantages throughout life ends up as avowed Marxist themselves. And that, by the way, is how you end up with so much support for the neocon regime, quote unquote, on the right. The people in control of the uniparty right and doing the messaging of the uniparty right and setting the agenda of the uniparty right in relation to the global regime are all educated at the very same schools. And all of them pretend that somehow they, through some grace of character, were able to avoid the indoctrination while getting the exact same education as the people on the uniparty left. Again, they simply identify as conservative while believing virtually all of the same ideas as the uniparty left and expressing slightly different opinions and interpretations of those same underlying ideas that they all believe are necessary and true. Daniel Markovitz summarized years of research in his book, The Meritocracy Trap, quote, Today, middle-class children lose out to the rich children at school, and middle-class adults lose out to elite graduates at work. Meritocracy blocks the middle class from opportunity, then it blames those who lose a competition for income and status that, even when everyone plays by the rules, only the rich can win. So what do we have here? We have the same dynamic that exists on Twitter and other social media when it is censored. We have the intellectual kids table dynamic. They prevent an entire portion of the population from playing the game because they are in the systems of power and control and they dictate the rules of the game. You excel at college by complying, by allowing yourself to be indoctrinated with certain ideas and ideals and then expressing them throughout life where you will be promoted and uplifted based on impressing people higher than you in the social status hierarchy within the party of false decorum by best supporting the agenda or by being totally corrupt or totally compromised so that you will be in a position of servility and easily controllable by the people above you who will eventually give you an increasingly comfortable material lifestyle, but never relinquishing even a little bit of the control they hold over you. The people at the top of this so-called meritocracy have not achieved their position by merit or through merit and don't need to protect their position by or through merit. They are given their positions and the system protects them, just like at the intellectual kids table, just like on censored social media platforms. This is how the party of false decorum operates and it operates this way in every instance. Back to David Brooks. Over the last decades, we've taken over whole professions and locked everybody else out. When I began my journalism career in Chicago in the 1980s, there were still some crusty old working class guys around the newsroom. Now we're not only a college dominated profession, we're an elite college dominated profession. Only 0.8% of college students graduate from the super elite 12 schools. The Ivy League colleges 
plus Stanford, MIT, Duke, and the University of Chicago. A 2018 study found that more than 50% of the staff writers at the beloved New York Times and the Wall Street Journal attended one of the 29 most elite universities in the nation. So more than 50% of the staff writers at these papers of record have attended one of the 29 most elite universities. And of course, these ranks of elite universities are supplied by these same people. Does anyone actually imagine that you are getting an extraordinary education at Harvard or Stanford or any of these schools? No, you are getting an extraordinary indoctrination into absolutely destructive schools of thought. And while you may be dealing with world-renowned experts on certain subject matter, it turns out that a lot of that subject matter is totally and completely wrong and often downright evil. Many of the areas of focus and expertise at these schools represent entirely made up fictional areas of study. And I'm not just talking about epidemiology and virology. I'm talking about women's studies and critical race theory and gender theory and ethnic studies and all of these things. These universities have done great work to reduce the value of their own diplomas to nothing. But to David Brooks and people like David Brooks, these are still elite universities. Back to David Brooks. Writing in Compact Magazine, Michael Lind observes that the upper middle class job market looks like a candelabrum. Oh, oh, David Brooks, a candelabrum you don't say. Those who manage to squeeze through the stem of a few prestigious colleges and universities in their youth can then branch out to fill leadership positions in almost every vocation. So for those elitists who attended these great colleges, they have a world of opportunity in front of them. Or as Markovitz puts it, quote, Elite graduates monopolize the best jobs and at the same time invent new technologies that privilege super skilled workers, making the best jobs better and all other jobs worse. So basically, they go to all the best schools and become so super smart that they figure out how to make everything work so well that it unfortunately renders everyone else's jobs obsolete or redundant. You might remember me talking about the clear pass that you see in the airport and how they wanted to apply that to all walks of life. The CEO of clear talked about how the clear pass would facilitate a free and easy experience throughout the day. You would get up in the morning, you would go to work, you would use the clear pass to get into the building. Then when you left, you would use the clear pass to get into the gym, to get into the movie theater, to get into the restaurant after the movie theater, and then to re-enter your own home. Just this one little pass on your phone made it possible for you to enter all these buildings free and easy because your vaccine passport is going to be there. And so the buildings themselves would know for sure that you were allowed in. Don't you see how much easier that is than not having vaccine passports that track everything you do that you have to show to go anywhere? Now, you might think that it was okay to just walk into buildings willy nilly just because you belonged at those buildings and had a membership or were going to spend your money or it was your home. 
But the only reason you think that was easier is because you're uneducated. If you were smart, if you were super smart, if you were super skilled, you would know that the clear pass actually facilitates a much easier life. And it's better for everyone because you can have the comfort of knowing that everyone in the building injected themselves with a toxic experimental substance that can't protect them from a disease that can't kill them because the television told them they'd get in trouble if they didn't. And that's a comforting thought. Back to David Brooks. Members of our class also segregate ourselves into a few booming metro areas. San Francisco, D.C., Austin, and so on. In 2020, Biden won only 500 counties or so, but together they are responsible for 71% of the American economy. Trump won over 2,500 counties, responsible for only 29%. And that has to be true because everybody knows that our elections are free and fair, safe and secure, and that the reported results accurately reflect the will and intent of the American voter. And you cannot dispute that because if you did dispute that, then David Brooks's point here might disappear. And this is one of the points they consistently make about the good of society as it is. This is where all the important people are. This is how these people get important. And if you want the world to get better, you better let the important people do whatever they want. Now, are there this many people and this many votes in these regions? Did Joe Biden really win all these counties? No, of course not. And certainly not to the degree they describe. But once you steal elections year after year for decades, it's really easy to create the society you want and maintain it simply by stealing more elections. Brooks writes, once we find our clicks, we don't get out much. In the book, Social Class in the 21st Century, the sociologist Mike Savage and his co-researchers found that the members of the highly educated class tend to be the most insular measured by how often we have contact with those who have jobs unlike our own. The elitists don't know anyone outside their class. And I can attest because the elitists I knew in college did not hang out with anyone who was unlike them. The only time they got any feedback from members of other classes were when those people were being paid to serve them which creates a situation where they're very unlikely to be argued with or even disagreed with. Armed with all kinds of economic, cultural, and political power, we support policies that help ourselves. Free trade makes the products we buy cheaper, and our jobs are unlikely to be moved to China. Well, Chinese slave labor makes the products you buy cheaper. And your jobs are unlikely to be moved to China because your jobs cannot be performed by Chinese slaves. Otherwise, your jobs would be gone. And now that we're being told you can be replaced with an AI, perhaps your job will be gone, David Brooks. Open immigration makes our service staff cheaper, but new, less educated immigrants aren't likely to put downward pressure on our wages. And that is a pretty incredible sentence. They're service staff, eh? Oh yeah, everybody has a service staff. And what does he mean by open immigration? Oh, he means illegal immigration. And if you know what illegal immigration actually is, then you'll know that's a slave trade. And he's talking about a cheap service staff. Could he be saying that his slaves are freely available, but that 
their lack of education means that they will not put downward pressure on the wages of people of his educational and financial status. They will not be able to replace him at his job. Like all elites, we use language and mores as tools to recognize one another and exclude others. Using words like problematic, cisgender, Latinx, and intersectional is a sure sign that you've got cultural capital coming out of your ears. Meanwhile, members of the less educated classes have to walk on eggshells because they never know when we've changed the usage rules so that something that was sayable five years ago now gets you fired. We also change the moral norms in ways that suit ourselves, never mind the cost to others. For example, there used to be a norm that discouraged people from having children outside marriage. But that got washed away during our period of cultural dominance as we eroded norms that seemed judgmental or that might inhibit individual freedom. And what they mean, of course, is it might inhibit their casual sex lives. It's not that they couldn't have those lives before. They just wanted to make sure that no one could judge them for it. After this social norm was eroded, a funny thing happened. Members of our class still overwhelmingly married and had children within wedlock. People without our resources, unsupported by social norms, were less able to do that. As Adrian Wooldridge points out in his magisterial 2021 book, The Aristocracy of Talent, quote, 60% of births to women with only a high school certificate occur out of wedlock compared with only 10% to women with a university degree. That matters, he continues, because, quote, the rate of single parenting is the most significant predictor of social immobility in the country. And it's true, this situation is a direct result of the culture our elites have created for us and the values they spread throughout culture because, of course, they have control over the means of information and the means of disseminating that information. They spread toxic values that they themselves do not practice. Does this mean that I think the people in my class are vicious and evil? No. Most of us are earnest, kind, and public-spirited but we take for granted and benefit from systems that have become oppressive. Elite institutions have become so politically progressive in part because the people in them want to feel good about themselves as they take part in systems that exclude and reject. And again, that is absolutely right. Well observed and well stated, but this is just navel gazing. David Brooks is not trying to upset this dynamic. He is trying to continue this dynamic and all of the political positions he supports make that clear. They have created an entire culture that makes them feel good about themselves as they take part in systems that exclude and reject. They cannot deal with the opposition because the opposition exposes that which they want to remain hidden. And that is their influence, their power, and their manipulation. They want it to be someone else's fault that things are this way. Because if they accept responsibility, then they might have to let go of the power and the influence and the manipulation. It's easy to understand why people in less educated classes would conclude that they are under economic, political, cultural, and moral assault. 
and why they've rallied around Trump as their best warrior against the educated class. He understood that it's not the entrepreneurs who seem most threatening to workers. It's the professional class. Trump understood that there was great demand for a leader who would stick his thumb in our eye on a daily basis and reject the whole epistemic regime that we rode in on. And he is largely right about that. Let's continue. If distrustful populism is your basic worldview, the Trump indictments seem like just another skirmish in the class war between the professionals and the workers, another assault by a bunch of coastal lawyers who want to take down the man who most aggressively stands up to them. Of course, the indictments don't cause Trump supporters to abandon him. They cause them to become more fiercely loyal. That's the polling story of the last six months. Are Trump supporters right that the indictments are just a political witch hunt? Of course not. As a card-carrying member of my class, I still basically trust the legal system and the neutral arbiters of justice. Trump is a monster in the way we've all been saying for years and deserves to go to prison. Now, wait, what? Hey, David, you were kind of on a roll there, but now you sound like a straight up Nazi, which is, I'm sure, unrelated to the fact that you are part of a hate movement and that you are supporting actual Nazis in Ukraine. I'm sure that none of those things have anything to do with one another, but you still basically trust the legal system as it pursues the political opponents of a regime that everyone with the slightest wherewithal knows and understands is illegitimate, regardless of whether or not they're willing to admit it. But then again, you must trust the legal system because your trust in the legal system is the only even mildly convincing argument that somehow Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes. And if you call that into question, people might wonder, wait a second, are all those court decisions really proof that Joe Biden received 81 million real lawful American votes? Because that doesn't make sense if you're going to say that the courts don't always do the right thing. So I guess they must do that. And I suppose that means that they're going to put Trump away and that they'll do so because Trump is a monster. And when they put Trump away, that will mean that it's because it was the right thing to do. Donald Trump, in fact, deserves to go to prison, regardless of whether or not these claims are proven, or if these indictments are even based on actual violations of the law. And you kind of got to think they can't be based on how they've all progressed and based on the fact that they require novel legal theories and the active ignoring of all exculpatory information or evidence or legal theory. You see, those elites that support this whole system, it's possible that they're the bad guys, but not in this situation, never in this situation, not when it comes to Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a monster. Donald Trump is evil. So while his supporters might have some legitimate grievances about the elites and culture, well, Donald Trump is just not an acceptable solution, whether they like it or not. And if it just so turns out that there are more normal people than there are elites and those normal people all want Donald Trump to win, even in numbers greater than the number of elites who don't want him to, well, 
They're not allowed to have that option because it's just too dangerous, too threatening to our democracy. If it had been any other situation, well, maybe they would have a point that democracy actually is meant to serve the majority of people and the point that, of course, we don't have a democracy here in this country. But let's finish off with Brooks. But there's a larger context here. As the sociologist E. Digby Baltzell wrote decades ago, quote, History is a graveyard of classes which have preferred caste privileges to leadership. End quote. That is the destiny our class is now flirting with. We can condemn the Trumpian populists until the cows come home. But the real question is, when will we stop behaving in ways that make Trumpism inevitable? Isn't it amazing? To simultaneously claim and pretend you believe that Joe Biden got 81 million real lawful American votes and that Donald Trump really is a threat to democracy in all the ways they describe him to be. He is, in fact, a monster. He does deserve to go to prison. But somehow there are all these people out there in the non elite majority that still want Donald Trump to be president because they see as a problem the problematic things elites are actually doing. And you see, it's okay for elites to recognize that elites are the problem because elites believe that elites are also the solution to the problems elites cause. And they would be better able to solve those problems if people stopped dissenting and disagreeing with them. They have the best solutions to the problems they've created if you will simply allow them to implement those solutions unabated, then the world will be a much better place from the point of view of the elitists who are always improving the world for the benefit of themselves as they are happy to admit. And you see, it's entirely possible that at some point, normal people might recognize all of this and then they might eventually say all of this. And that's why we need to make sure that their voices are never allowed in the conversations because it turns out that when they start expressing all of these true ideas that threaten us, well, that presents a real danger. People might eventually realize that we're wrong and we can't allow that to happen because we're the best and brightest. We're the ones tasked with protecting all of this. And who are we protecting it from? <laughs> Normal people who are threatening to destroy it. We can't fix these problems on their behalf if they won't give us all the power and status and wealth that will allow us to do so. And all of this makes perfect sense at the intellectual kids table and absolutely nowhere else. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com. 
And you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!